Right, guys we're back with uh, dr kevin connors uh, and this bio was truly exciting to me because the work is so in line with what we do and i'm excited to talk to him today and dive a little deeper dr connors is a clinical director at connors clinic and alternative cancer treatment center he graduated with his doctorate from northwestern health sciences university in 1986 he's been studying alternative cancer care for over 23 years he holds uh, ama fellowships board certifications in anti-aging medicine regenerative and functional medicine, botanical medicine, and is board certified in integrative cancer therapy. So his, his uh, perspective is truly unique. Dr. Connors is also certified in functional neurology. He has over 300 hours postgraduate uh, study in autism spectrum disorders, which we'd also like to touch on today. Uh, he's trained and certified in epigenetic clinical methylation and nutrigenomics. Dr. Connors is practicing applied kinesiology kinesiologist uh, with an emphasis on botanical medicine and homeopathy. He has written numerous books, and I'm going to tell you something amazing about those books, uh, including Stop Fighting Cancer, Start Treating the Cause, The Seven Phases of Detoxification. And the amazing thing is he's actually made them available for free. So you can go to connorsclinic.com forward slash books. It's his gift back to the world. He wants you to have access to the information and download them all for free. Welcome today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Fantastic. So first of all, just reading what you do and the scope of your experience and knowledge, like sincerely, I'm excited to talk to you because we hardly get to meet people that have sort of both sides of the story and are trying to find that middle ground and truly care for people. And you've been doing this for 23 years now. Uh, yeah, I actually been doing it for longer than that, mainly focused on cancer for the last 23 years. But um, yeah, we've added nutrigenomics, uh, looking at people's DNA, I don't know, seven or eight years ago or whatever, when it first started coming out, because it's just, whenever you hear about a new piece of the puzzle that you can help um, uh, understand why a person might be going through something and that you can make alterations to um, their progress, it's always a blessing, so. And you've been out there touting that you know, your genetics aren't your destiny, meaning that there's, although you get pointed in certain directions, you kind of understand what to work on, where to focus, but there's so much more is what you learn. And I think what you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, is the genetic conditions that people are focused on, you know, like you're born with this switch that needs to be turned on or off that may equal a cancer, but most cancers aren't that, right? Is that correct? Is that correct? Yeah. So most cancers I mean, there's, there's really very little genetic connection directly to cancer. I mean, there's people with um, what's called Lynch syndrome, which is a specific gene um, that's going to predispose them to colon cancer. Um, but that's, that's rare. Right. Um, uh, even, you know, among people with colon cancer, a very, very small population, it's because of Lynch syndrome. So they're from a cancer and genetic perspective, uh, really, I think less than 5% of the cancers have a direct genetic component. You don't get cancer because of your genes. It's that indirect piece that uh, if you look at some different metabolic pathways in the genetic spectrum, 
you can help prevent all sorts of diseases if you know what's going on. It's kind of like you talked about with, you know, having free access to all our books. It's our gift to the world to spread knowledge. And it just sparked a thought in my mind is is that that's really it. The more you can know about your body and about what's going on um, from a metabolic standpoint with all your cells and you can the more you can make changes consciously um, that can alter the outcomes. And that's the whole idea. And the thinking, unfortunately, is that, you know, oh, uh, my mother had breast cancer. It's in my genes. It's in my genetics, right? There may be things going on genetically that make you at higher risk for certain exposures to cause that inflammatory or metabolic load. And that's actually the thing you need to understand and deal with. But it doesn't directly equal cancer cancer is the ha- that happens to be the spoke that got triggered for you for somebody else it could have been something else depending on where cellularly they're sort of underwhelmed right so it, is that where you dove into sort of the nutrigenomics to try and understand what are those environment nutrition lifestyle factors what are those loads that equal the net disease right that's really it because it is those secondary things and tertiary things so if i have for instance, if I have a lot of defects on my cytochrome P450 pathways, my liver phase one detoxification pathways, um, I'm going to have by that quite possibly a slower liver detox pathway. So um, let's say if you and I are, are both exposed, living a very similar lifestyle, both exposed to the exact same number of toxins, let's say, mm-hmm. if that was even measurable, but let's say we are both exposed to the same lifestyle, but you have really healthy um, liver detox pathway genes. So you make, you know, an adequate amount of enzymes for your phase one, phase two liver detoxification pathway. Your liver is going to be functioning very healthy and you'll be able to process toxins faster than if I had a lot of defects on those pathways. So if I have a lot of SNP defects on my cytochrome P450 or my PON1 pathways, my liver is going to be able to process toxins slower than someone who doesn't. And that's the idea. I mean, you can't give a one-to-one correlation to what that's going to do to a person's body. But if we're exposed to the same amount of poisons, I may not get rid of them as fast as someone who doesn't have those pathway defects. And if you knew about that prior to, um, you know, being, you know, end up with a diagnosis of a serious disease, you could make some alterations in your lifestyle or may scare you straight and be careful with toxic exposure um, that can help prevent a serious diagnosis in the future. There's some people that ask then, okay, I understand that my liver isn't, it's a little suboptimal, doesn't work as well as my friend or cousin or whoever. Why does that, why is the net result of that potentially cancer? How does, what, what's that bridge? What, what actually happens biochemistry wise where that toxic load leads to this cellular change and I have cancer? Well, the physiology is simple. So if I'm exposed to poisons, whether I breathe them in, whether I ingest them or inject them, or put them on my skin and absorb them, those toxins get into my bloodstream. If you can think of it kind of like a cartoon, this is how my brain works. These toxins are circulating around in your bloodstream and they get to the liver and 
the liver will either say, yep, come on in, we can process you and get you out of the body. Or if your liver is full from a genetic issue, full from being overexposed to toxins, full from a lifestyle of alcohol abuse or other dietary abuse, then that liver says, hey, we can't take you, no vacancy. That toxin circulates around the blood again, Asks again, knocking on the door of the liver again, next time it goes around, still full, circulates around again, it's going to be shunted to the extracellular spaces. You're not going to just have a toxic load in your bloodstream. I mean, it's going to damage red blood cells, it's going to damage epithelial, uh, endothelial cells, causing heart disease, cardiovascular disorders, and actually that's one of the causes of that but it's gonna be ultimately shunted to your extracellular spaces and then can cross your cell membranes into your cells. And that's when it could really do damage. So any sort of toxin, whether it's a heavy metal or glyphosate or some other pesticide or herbicide or anything, if it gets inside the cell, it can affect cellular function. You have all these different uh, little organelles in the cell that do very specific functions. It's like a, it's like literally as busy as New York City inside every single cell of your body. If it affects the DNA, uh, it can affect the replication cycle. So normally, most of your cells have a replication cycle of anywhere between eight to 24 weeks, meaning that, let's say your uh, liver cell is going to reproduce another liver cell in 12 weeks, and then that mother cell will die through a process called apoptosis. Hmm. And that cycle continues. You get a renewed body constantly, and it can renew slightly degenerate. That's what aging is. And you could do some things to help hinder that. But if something gets inside the cell, it affects the nucleus, and increases that rate of replication, that's really what cancer is. So the definition of cancer is one of your cells, it's not an outside thing, one of your cells, something is affecting that rate of replication. And now it's in a state of rapid replication. That's what cancer is. And it's replicating cells that are in a state of rapid replication. So how fast that rate of replication is, whether it's once a day instead of every 12 weeks or multiple times a day is how aggressive the cancer is. So, um, Toxins are a major piece to that. Toxins, anything that gets inside the cell can affect the DNA. It can be a, a biotoxin like a bacteria or a virus, but certainly more common than not, it's a toxin that affects the DNA. So that's why uh, toxic exposure um, can overwhelm your liver. Toxic exposure that doesn't get out of your body becomes a part of your body. So anything you're exposed to that you can't get rid of becomes a part of you. And it um, uh, doesn't mean it's going to cause cancer every time, but it, you increase your risk of a serious disease like that if you don't get rid of it. Right. And this is where there's a lot of, so we deal with a lot of uh, particularly breast cancer patients uh, where the sort of light bulb that went off is, I now know why it, it's not so much about what, like I have cancer and how do I treat it? That acute response, let's correct it, right? But if you don't know why it happened, you're literally gonna correct it to walk back into the exact same lifestyle environment, load, toxic load, whatever it is you were you were doing, and then wonder why did it come back? 
right? So that, that question, that why question, although we're kind of in that process, it's not really answered and it's not, we're not even looking for that answer. That really is the cure, that, that why. It really is. I mean, you at least have to address it. You could do chemotherapy and radiation and standards of care, and it could knock you down to no evidence of disease. But if you don't deal with the cause, right. um, the chance, I don't want to say it's always going to come back, but the chance that you have reoccurrence, either metastasis or another uh, uh, separate primary cancer, you know, the risk is there. So if you can mitigate that risk any way possible, you're just going to have a better outcome. Now, when you're dealing with cancer patients, when when things have progressed, you know, into stage three, stage four, how much is this type of work actually affected? Like, is this something that can only be helpful at an early stage? Or are there things you can do for that stage four patient that maybe they wouldn't normally have experienced at the typical allopathic level? Um, yeah, you're, most of the things we're talking about here not, are not being addressed at all at the allopathic level. Matter of fact, you get a cancer patient it's not uncommon that they'll do a genetic profile on them and patients think that they got a full genetic profile, but really they only did um, 12 of their BRCA genes or something like that. Yeah. Um, so they didn't get a genetic profile. So when we look at a person's genes, we're not just looking at tumor suppressor genes. So your BRCA genes are tumor suppressor genes. And yes, if you have defects in specific BRCA genes, you're, it's going to increase your risk of uh, a hormone type cancer, like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or something like that. Right. However, um, you can't change those, those genes. You can do some things if, if you do know that you have those defects to help mitigate your risk somewhat, but that's not really what we're looking at. We do look at the tumor suppressor genes and more than just the BRCA genes, there's multiple tumor suppressor genes because there's ways to, to, um, to stimulate those even if you have defects. But you have to look at these other pathways. And we'll just use the detoxification pathway as an example because we look at multiple metabolic pathways with people's genes. But the detoxification pathway may be one of the most important because um, uh, even though I have a defect in a tumor suppressor gene, let's say I have BRCA gene defects, doesn't mean I'm, that doesn't cause cancer. So your tumor suppressor genes are genes that turn on specific apoptotic cycles, meaning that if a, if a cell goes into rapid replication, you have these genes in your cells that will turn on these tumor suppressor genes to cause the cell to die. It will cause the cell to die if it goes in rapid replication. If I have defects in the BRCA genes, it's gonna be less apt to die, but still that didn't cause the replication. Something else still got inside the cell and damaged the DNA and caused the rapid replication. It was, if I have BRCA gene defects, then I'm not turning on a cell apoptotic process that's killing it, but it's that defect is not causing the cancer. So just be straight and we'll keep our listeners understanding that piece. However, if so, again, then you get back to what the cause is. So is it a toxin? Is it a biotoxin? What is it that got inside that cell and is causing that? If it is a toxin, your toxins detoxify through your liver detox pathways. You have to make sure that those are open genetically. 
and functionally, so it's not just your genes, you can have very healthy uh, detox pathway genes, but still have a clogged liver for other reasons too. So you need to address those as a clinician. And the more you can do that, even regardless of whether a person's in you know, late stage four, um, it's even more important to address those pathways. So um, yeah, if you can catch a person you know, when they're 14 years old and look at their genes and say, hey, you have these defects, you want to be more careful in this part of your lifestyle because of these defects, you might want to supplement these kind of nutrients because of these defects, you might be able to push out diseases that that person may or may not get diagnosed with or, or eliminate that if you can be as proactive as possible. So the patients that you're dealing with in your clinic, what's the proportion of people that are, you know, gone down this conventional route, meaning that here's the chemo, here's the medic, and the people that are saying, yeah, I'll work with you at this level. Uh, I want to try what you're talking about. Uh, is that the bulk of what's going on? Well, most patients that seek us out um, have already gone down the conventional route right. or are concurrently going down the conventional route. It just is the nature of the beast when a person gets a diagnosis of cancer. It's a small percentage of people that are that proactive that are like, boy, I just found out I have cancer. Um, and they're thinking rationally and like, I'm going to go find out some alternative things to do. We do get some of those, and that's a joy to work with those people that haven't gotten a bunch of chemotherapy and such yet. Uh, but, but honestly, most of our patients are either in the middle of chemotherapy or radiation or surgery or have done it and, and um, have failed um, that pathway and then are seeking out alternative care. So um, the majority of our patients are stage four when they come to see us. Mm-hmm. That just happens to be our practice. And um, people are scared when they get a cancer diagnosis and they, they tend to follow what their oncologist tells them to do. Um, and many have great results, but some have regrets because of that, because they didn't slow down and, and take a look at things um, uh, um, as, as closely as they wish they would have. And you have this amazing reputation for these people coming to you after being failed by other methods, which are the sort of go-to conventional methods and then you end up turning things around whereas you know the what was meant to be the tool didn't work you know uh, again and i think that comes back to well what is the purpose of the tool it's to suppress that the, the last layer the symptom versus let's figure out what's going on yeah and the tool is damaging as well so you're doing some radiation or chemotherapy you're adding a whole lot of toxicants that you have to now detoxify. So if this person actually is suffering from cancer because of um, uh, failure to detoxify or hyperexposure to some sort of toxin at some point in time, um, and now you're adding poisons to the body to kill the cancer, even if you that successfully works, you know, you do chemotherapy, it knocks the cancer down. It is so beneficial to concurrently do a natural approach to support those detoxification pathways to get rid of that chemotherapy so it does less damage to your healthy cells um, and you have less side effects of the chemotherapy. Another unique perspective you have is you've understood the methylation system at a clinical level. Like most, 
you talk to most doctors and you'll hear the, you know, he'll MTHFR and that's the extent of the conversation and MTHFR good, bad, and let's figure out what that means, right? So there's a lot more going on in methylation than that. And how impactful has that been as, as in sort of a layer on the detox? Well, that's important because a lot of doctors will do, um, a lot of functional doctors will do um, just testing on a few genes. Like they'll look at the MTHFR gene and if, you know, there's more hits on that if you Google it than anything yeah. else. Um, because um, it's it's a it's kind of a puddle deep understanding of genetics, and oh well, you have an MTHFR defect, and so we need to give you methyl groups. So they, you know, without looking at the downstream effects of that, you can actually do more harm than good, um, even in a non-cancer patient. If that you know you know if a person has a bunch of defects in their biopterin pathway, and you're going to add a whole bunch of methyl groups to their combination, you could actually be stimulating excess serotonin and, and excess dopamine and cause rage issues and anger issues and a whole bunch of different problems that, that um, now you've just caused more problems by using supplementation because you don't have enough information that you're going on um, taking care of that patient. Now with cancer, it's a whole other ball of wax because we don't, methyl groups, what do methyl groups do in our body? Um, they help silence genes and we don't want to be silencing tumor suppressor genes. Um, so we are very careful in adding methyl groups to cancer patients. We want them to get methyl groups just solely through natural means by eating good foliage. Um, and we give very little methyl groups supplementally. So when the person comes to you, look, it keeps coming back to the, the liver health detox taking that toxic insult load off of the cell so they can come back to life and flourish. What, what are the things that you're doing? What are the actual interventions? Is it, is it supplementation? Is it more about diet or what are, what are the recommendations people are getting? It's both. I mean, you have to encompass a lifestyle change right. so that that person, and, and in a way that that person can, can continue that lifestyle change. So you don't, you know, we don't do, um, diets like, you know, every cancer patient goes on a ketogenic diet or something like that. This is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's, it's not even correct. You know, a ketogenic diet can be higher in animal proteins. It can be higher in dairy. Um, most cancer patients, um, dairy is a driver, uh, at some point at some level, uh, stimulates IGF function, increases other growth hormones. There's hormone, other hormones in dairy, um, that could be major drivers for cancer. So you do have to look at diet. Um, you do, we do supplementation and support detox pathways supplementally. Um, but I talk a lot about what, what I call the seven phases of detoxification because elimination phase six is a key. It's quite often you get patients, especially if they're in a later stage cancer and using pain meds as well that are constipated. If you're constipated, you're reabsorbing toxins. If you're constipated, you're not eliminating. And um, uh, I mean, you're not getting toxins out of your body, even if your liver is doing um, the darndest job it can. Um, it's just dumping it into the intestines and your body's just reabsorbing it in the large intestine. So you have to start there, make sure you're eliminating. What I call phase five then is to bind 
use it some sort of binder of some sort, even if it's just dietary fiber to help bind toxins in the gut so you're not reabsorbing and just move back upstream that way. Um, so there is, there's physical things to do. We talk a lot about coffee enemas, um, really because the benefit of stimulating parasympathetic function, um, your parasympathetics are that side of the autonomic nervous system that, that is your neurological control of all your detoxification processes and um, of your immune system too. So when we're dealing with cancer, we need an uptick of their immune system as well as an uptick of their detoxification. And those are from a neurological perspective controlled completely by your parasympathetic side of the nervous system and coffee enemas are one of the best ways to stimulate that. So even from doing hot packs over your liver or gallbladder, there's physical things that a person could do. Um, there's nutritional things and dietary considerations as well. And just from listening to you, well, for, first of all, to your point about elimination, I remember speaking to a clinician who deals with a lot of breast cancer patients and she said the exact same thing. There's no point starting the detox if you're not eliminating and clearing because where is it going? You know, so you got to work on that first, make sure that there's a flow, the end of the cycle actually exists yeah. that's where your detox, right? Um, but going back to what you were saying, the, the way you look at cancer and the way you're describing it and kind of the root, the causality, it's not the, you know, here's why we think maybe genetically you have this condition because your mama had it, you know, but here's, we're actually talking about like really why it almost sounds like waiting to get sick and then come and seeing you as a third or fourth step, because whatever else didn't work, you don't have to, you, you can actually start now. Like you don't, being sick shouldn't be the wake up call to start doing some of the things you're talking about. Because uh, we're talking about truly root cause, meaning that prevent it, if you, if you understand why it's happening. Yeah, well, we have a very misguided understanding of healthcare in, you know, in the Western world, um, we wait till we do get sick and then we try to treat ourselves instead of trying to take care of ourselves so that we don't get sick. Um, and it's hard to change mindsets. Um, and, and the entire medical profession is built upon that model. So um, they're not willing to try to change mindsets. So we're doing it at a grassroots level, trying to do that. Now, when we have cancer patients come to us and we go through a whole genetic profile with the cancer patient themselves, invariably um, the family member sitting and watching that Zoom call going over their genes are like, hey, how can I do this for myself and my kids? And, and uh, well, yeah, that's a much wiser choice really um, to, do, to, to look at your body, not just from a genetic perspective, but from um, you know, a, a holistic perspective uh, prior to getting sick and you make better choices uh, in life um, based upon that. Using a person's genes, it can be helpful because I used the term scared straight earlier. It can be beneficial to say, hey, you have this defect. You, you, know, you do not detoxify glyphosates very well at all. You need to be careful. Uh, this is the pathway that you, uh, you, know, you make this um, and you do have these defects. It doesn't mean that you don't make this very well, but you should support it this way. You know, think about, you know, this dietary approach. Look at, you don't get rid of histamines very well. You have all these defects in your HNMT genes. Um, well, I don't have any problems. Well, you are presupposed to that. So maybe think about, you know, 
doing this in your lifestyle. So you can point people in right directions and it can give them information. I just think the more information that you have, you can be a better care, care, caretaker of your own health instead of relying on a doctor at all. Personally, I just don't like doctors. Um, so I just think, so I try to, when we get information, we try to make videos and do blog posts and write books to get that information out there so people can, can be their best advocate um, in a world that is growing more and more leery of practice of medicine and you need your own to be your own doctor basically and when it comes to working with somebody like yourself is the resistance i understand so i'm in toronto canada right we have a very different healthcare system here the problems are the same in terms of how we think about our health and the entitlement of i'll just do what i want and the doctor will fix me but the way we pay for it is different here we have a government that pays for all our medical bills so when it comes to people seeking out, you know, help of the nature you're describing, how do they go about it? Or is this them now having to go on about their on their own because insurance won't help them? Or what does that typically look like? Yeah, I mean, we have been um, a non-insurance type practice for 20 years. So okay. uh, uh, yeah, the people do not utilize their insurance when they come to us. Uh, in, in America, at least, people more and more people have you know five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar deductibles, so they're used to paying for some right. of their care. Now, to me, it's that's a that's a beautiful thing to have such a great deductible. Less people are running to the doctor just to get antibiotics for their kids' ear infections um, right. that they shouldn't be doing. So. Um, people are allowing their immune system and trying to support their immune system um, to deal with viruses and bacteria and things. So I think that's a, a better way to go about. You're going to build your own antibodies instead of trying to wipe out your flora with an antibiotic. So um, uh, there's a growing uh, you know, amount, a number of people that are seeing that the failures and the standards of medicine that are out there and are seeking out um, clinicians like us. Um, we certainly never have a problem. We just, uh, with finding patients, we have to turn patients away constantly. Right. And that's part of why we try to educate and put out blogs and, and videos and things and do interviews like this, because the more we can help people be able to help themselves, I think that's, that is really the future is, is um, using clinicians like myself and others uh, that are out there as guides, um, but then you taking more of an active role in your own healthcare um, is really gonna be where we're gonna be at in the future. So you're, I mean, using that example of your child with ear infection, I've been through that by the way, and before I knew better, that's exactly what I did. I, you know, I went and got the antibiotics because my mother, my kid's grandmother yelled at me and said, why aren't you at the doctor yet? Right. And right. that's what I think we're supposed to do. And again, this was a few years before we dove, dove into the side of our, the world and learned this and started practicing this ourselves. So how does somebody in that position, what, what's that shift? What do they do? Because in that moment, first of all, what should they have done? I know what you're saying. If they had the proper immunity built up, maybe the infection wouldn't have happened, but it happened because it wasn't built up. So what, what alternatively should they have done? How can, what are the habits they should start adopting? And that, that warning flag that your child has an ear infection, that should be the point. And the same context can be applied to yourself. You'll find yourself in the same position. 
what are those habits you can start adopting to take yourself away from, I know I'm in the wrong place now to like, here's where I should be. I think the first habit to adopt is start asking yourself better questions. Um, and maybe one of the best questions to start asking is why? Always ask why. I mean, maybe, maybe you can't always come to the answer to that why. Like, why do I have strep? You know, why do I get a strep infection every winter? Um, um, you, the answer might not be completely clear, but if the more you can understand simple physiology, the better. So start educating yourself. Start listening to webinars, um, you know, devour websites like ours and others and read good books to teach you that, um, boy, every time I get a strep infection, the reason why I'm susceptible to it is I run and get antibiotics. Well, if you do that, you never allow your body to start making antibodies. So understanding simple simple physiology of an immune response. If I'm exposed to an infectious organism, I fire a, what's called a Th1 side of my immune system response to try to kill it. That's when I'll get a fever and not feel really well. Um, if it can't kill it, um, that, that, that sickness um, progresses. And then my Th1 side suppresses a little bit. My Th2 side, the B cell side fires, and that's what makes antibodies. Problem is many people run to the doctor prior to that taking place, go get an antibiotic, which if it's a bacterial infection, it will knock down the infection. And now I feel better. And I think I did the right thing. Well, you never allowed your body to go through that cycle of a TH2 reaction, a B cell reaction. That's what makes antibodies. So at the end of the game, after two weeks of having this, you know, the, after initial exposure and having the infection, the strep infection, now I'm better and I'm back at work or school thinking that I've, you know, I've improved my immune system. But in, if, if I went down the pathway of getting an antibiotic, I really didn't improve my immune system at all, actually hindered it. Hmm. So the health of one's immune system, yes, it is. Do I have a good, healthy white blood cell count? But the real health of one's immune system is typically isn't measured through a standard blood test because the health of one's immune system really quantified is how, how many uh, circulating antibodies do I have against different pathogens? Right. So if I have circulated antibodies against strep and against different viruses and different bacteria, I am going to be less apt to ever quote unquote get sick because when I'm exposed to that pathogen or a similar pathogen, that antibody takes it right away. And my immediate TH1 response prior to me ever feeling sick or getting a fever kills it. And I didn't get sick, mm -hmm. but Hey, Bob, and my cubicle next to me had a horrible strep infection and I never got strep. I don't get strep. Why? Because you have circulated antibodies against strep. Therefore your immune system killed it. So um, we need to just redefine um, the health of our immune system and, and support it wisely um, and allow myself to be sick, kind of like, you know, great, great grandma did what did she do when the kids were sick, they got chicken soup and laid in bed and allowed their body. Maybe she didn't understand physiology, but uh, ignorantly, she allowed that kid's body to, you know, fire a TH1 and a TH2 response, make antibodies. That child is now 
um, going to be less susceptible to similar pathogens because they have circulated antibodies against them, and you've actually improved that person's immune system. Um, now, I'm not so naive to, to think that the benefits of antibiotic therapy have saved millions of people's lives, but it's improper use of it that is ultimately hindering um, the growth and, and stealthfulness of a person's immune system. Um, and we just need to be wise of that. So just understanding some simple um, concepts in physiology could be really beneficial. The way you describe it is almost like exercising, you know, just say you want to put on muscle, you got to break muscle, you got to go to the gym and rip it apart. So it builds back. Yeah. Again. Same yeah. thing, you want to get smarter, go read books, you got to train it, right? So you can train your immune system to get stronger with exposure, right? Yeah. And not that you want to go run around and go suck up every virus from every tabletop, but that that process of how often you get sick, that's just exposure, but how sick you get, that's, that's your measure of health. Meaning, can I actually cope? I right. do I have the antibodies, right? Yep. And so, yeah, and that's very great advice, by the way, for, for anyone that's listening, because we're, we're too quick to, and I understand when it's, especially when it's your children, you know, I don't want to get too sick. I don't want their ear, uh, you know, to pop or whatever could happen, you know, the eardrum, but for the most part, they're resilient and you have to let them go through that exercise. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, sorry. So going back to the cancers, I took you, derailed you a little bit, but it's just, a, you know, your wisdom, we wanted to share it. Um, the, the 5%, the, those genetic cancers, the ones that are, there's a direct cause it's, it's, you know, you're going to have it because of some gene variant, what you're suggesting in terms of the detox and, you know, liver health and less load on the cell, cellular health, ultimately, is that also going to help that? Or are we saying that that's so direct causation that this doesn't matter? Oh, no. So let's say there's a direct causation. A person has Lynch syndrome and they, you know, they have multiple family members that had colorectal cancer. And now they have colon cancer. Um, still, how you treat it is, is no different than if they didn't have Lynch syndrome. So you right. still want to help detoxify their body. You still want to increase that person's immune system because ultimately it's your your immune system's response directly on the cancer that's gonna help that person overcome the cancer. Um, so yes, yeah, so um, it wouldn't change the way you treat the person. Um, the, that 5% that have cancer because directly from a genetic component, um, uh, that is just a piece of the cause that you can't change. There are so many other factors that you can affect and you wanna address those and you still gotta get the body to fight that and get a direct immune response to that and stimulate the immune system, stimulate parasympathetics, all those things that go along with it. Okay. And when you talk about toxins, so everything we've talked up about up until now has been sort of external. Do you ever look at the internal, for example, oxidation or hormonal toxicity, like estrogen toxicity uh, and those levels and how they may cause an additional load? Oh, for sure. So like oxidative stress, I mean, that is again, almost always caused by toxins, right. oxidative load. Um, so that's kind of the same lines, but uh, the hormonal piece is another piece. So, um, you, you know, people think that it's, so let's just talk about good and bad hormones. Well, they're all good. There's just certain 
um, metabolites of estrogen and progesterone that normally are not supposed to stay in the system very long. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to get rid of them through the detoxification pathways. Um, and you do get rid of them same the way you'll get rid of any poison. You're going to dump it into the colon via the bile, into the small intestine. It's going to go into the colon. And, and again, the problem is, is that we reabsorb those things. Estrogens are commonly reabsorbed in the uh, lower uh, descending colon. So if you can bind those with binders, make sure your intestinal transit time is, is, um, is correct. So you're not um, reabsorbing those things, the better off it's gonna be. But it are, is these bad estrogens that can attach to certain receptors on cells. Um, typically, they're not the cause of cancer, though. So it's another thing to understand. Bad estrogens aren't getting inside the cell, interrupting the replication rate of cells, but they are blocking certain receptors on the outside of cancer cells, not allowing apoptosis. Right. So um, uh, getting so it's important to get rid of those bad estrogens, um, but you still have to address other causes that is affecting the replication cycle. And you still have to follow back that stream and help with that detoxification of those and look back at the pituitary and make sure you're not making ex excess estrogen and, or how you're exposed to exogenous estrogens. And there's a whole other discussion there too. So. so you actually remind me of a family that we dealt with where the mother had breast cancer when she came to see us for the fourth time. And she was probably in her late 40s, I would say. And her son, by his 20s, I think he was in his early 20s, had testicular cancer. Uh -huh. So they said that's oh, genetic without knowing you know, what that really means. But it sounds like it. Yeah, my son had what I had. And so we looked at her hormone pathways. And like you were talking about that estrogen metabolite, right? You can produce 2-hydroxy estrogen, 4 or 16. And that 16, that toxic stuff is what the mother was producing. Uh, that was her net metabolite every month. And her son was doing the same thing. He inherited the same genetic legacy. Doesn't mean that they were born sick. It just meant that they produced this toxic metabolite every month from their hormone. Uh, for, well, for the, for the male, it would be every day. For the mother, it was every month. That's causing, like you said, this toxic insult to the cellular structure. And then you think, well, the mother was also taking the birth control pill for like 10 years and adding even more estrogen fuel to the fire, right? Then you have to ask about estrogen mimics and chemicals and foods and what's that load. And that's why the thing that people think about isn't that consequential in terms of diet. Yeah, that could be the thing. Well, and the thing is, if you really did a study of you know, 10,000 people, um, you'd find um, groups of people that have that same genetic makeup that are making excess 16-hydroxy esterones and, and don't have cancer. Well, why is that? Yeah. Um, because they have other healthy detox pathways. They are getting rid of them. Yeah. And, you know, they have good elimination. They're not reabsorbing them. So um, you have to look at the body as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the practice of medicine currently fails is it separates it into systems and looks at them as just in little pieces, but your body doesn't function that way. Everything is dependent upon everything else. And you have this synergy that needs to be taking place, um, not just between cells, between organs, between systems. And when there's any failure there, it leads to problems 
elsewhere. So you need to take as high up stance and look at everything as possible from a physiological standpoint to really help somebody. And it sounds like your answer to that, because as you said, you go to your, the conventional doctor, you're not going to get that sort of perspective, right? Because like you said, they're trained in the buckets. I do this, I do this, I, and I have blinders on. So this is what I do. And I do it really well. I've learned about it, but ask me about this or this. I don't know. Right. So in order for the patient to sort of put themselves back in the middle, the answer to that, as you said, is learn. You have to you have to go out there and download, read, webinar, educate, because you may not get beyond the blinder perspective from whoever you're dealing with. Yeah, and I assume that anybody listening to this is in that category that they want to do that, otherwise they wouldn't be listening to it. So hats off to them. But the more you can learn, the more you can, the more knowledge you can gain, um, the more equipped that you're going to be able to make better health decisions for yourself, for sure. And then you need that quarterback that can, because there's also the the concern. You go read something, you find some information. Somebody may stumble across on their own. Oh, I need to understand my detox pathways, right? Then they may learn about some supplement, and then they may say, "Well, how's this going to affect my chemo? How's this going to affect my radiation?" And when they go ask the doctor, they say, "Do not take anything other than what we're giving you, because it may affect it," right? Right. So really, you need that quarterback that has that knowledge set beyond your clinician who's giving you the chemo, which nobody's telling you not to do. It's just you need to supplement it with other things that are dealing with the root while you deal with that sort of acute problem. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's awesome. So I would ask you, I mean, everything you've said until now has been mind-blowing and exactly, I think, what everybody was hoping to get from you. You know, from the books you put out there, uh, what would you say are sort of the, I, I understand we keep going to, to detox and understanding that. What are the areas top two or three that people are exposed to toxic insults that they don't even realize? The, the, well, probably the biggest toxic insult that we see as a causative issue with cancer is pesticides and herbicides. Okay. Um, and it's people, even people like, goodness sakes, it can't be because um, I've been eating organic for the last 20 years. It's just, they're just everywhere now. It's just everywhere. Um, I've been tempted multiple times to bring, you know, organic vegetables into my organic chemist friend just to test them. Just haven't had time to do that. But I would not be surprised if they're loaded with pesticides and herbicides, even organic fruits and vegetables. Um, it's like, how do you, can we wash these off? Can we get rid of these? We just poisoned our world. Um, yeah to the degree, I don't, I don't know how it's going to be improved, but it, it definitely, you know, consumer um, um, supply and demand drives things. So if people can just purposely start buying more organic thing, it's going to, it's going to drive, um, you know, the production of more organic things. So um, we, we tell people regardless, you have to be supporting detox pathways, assuming that you're overwhelmed um, even if you don't know your genetics, you just need to do as many right things as possible. Um, you're never going to be able to prevent all disease. You're never going to be able to prevent all cancers. You just try to do everything as, as well as you can without becoming too anxious about it. And you're going to have the better, best results. So. And that, that sort of cognition, you leave your house and you now know that you take a step on a lawn, you go golfing, 
you go to a you know a restaurant with a fancy garden you know whatever it is that's all the stuff that you're not meant to be breathing in and it's as pretty and beautiful as it is and it doesn't you know it doesn't look like a threat uh a lot of it is coming from there and it's everywhere right and it's yeah so it's, it's even something as simple as a a Teflon coated pan has estrogen mimics in it that you would never think are unhealthy. You're paying more. It's a more expensive pan, right? But it's causing you bigger problems. Yeah. So it's starting to educate. If you, if you do that one thing, you know, learn what are these things that are surround that I'm surrounded by that I don't even know are slowly poisoning me, like you said. Right. Right. So, yeah. And we had actually one last thought. You reminded me of a particular patient who had an extreme eczema issue, just wouldn't go away. And over and over and over again, they were going doctor to doctor, cream, cream, steroids, whatever, they were doing all this stuff. And when we met them, when did this start? Because it was adulthood eczema. This started, I think it was in their 30s. They, we brought it back down to the date that they changed their mattress. And their mattress was completely laden in fire retardants and chemicals that were designed sure. to protect them, right? And and it was off-gassing because it was in some plastic bag and they open it up and all of a sudden they're breathing that stuff in for the first couple of weeks as it off-gasses and then they continue to breathe in that memory foam chemical and the fire retardant on the fabric on top. And that was the thing that made them sick. Yeah. Right, so the answer- it, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's little things like that that, you, that most practitioners don't ever get a finger on that you need to, people need to educate themselves. And I remember my, my daughter years ago, um, my wife called, she broke out in hives. She had hives all over her body. Well, I thought, Oh, for sure. It's probably all the stuffed animals. She's, she was the one that had, you know, 40 stuffed animals on her bed. Um, I test with kinesiology brought, came home, tested none of those things, went in the bathroom, my wife had just purchased just one of those little round rugs in front of the um, sink. Um, that's what the problem was. The whole treatment procedure for her was take the rug and throw it out in the garage and her, yeah. her, her hives went away. Um, it's just chemicals that you can't see that are off-gassing, that you're breathing in, that your immune system can react to, can cause a hyperhistamine reaction or worse and give you just a world of problems because of it. So um, don't, you really kind of got to become a detective really like, yeah, yeah. Take control and, and work on it yourself. And this has been truly eye-opening. Awesome. We're taking something that people believe is you know, taken for granted. Like I I'm, I'm getting my mother had breast cancer. My aunt had it, you know, it, it's in my genetics and we're unpacking the, you know, the answer to the question, well, why does it even happen? And now we're learning that you can actually control your destiny if you understood how to deal with the root cause, like throwing that rug in the garage, right? That, and that's essentially right. what you're saying about the cancer. Figure out what the rug is, right? Get rid of it. Figure out your capacity to deal with the rug at the genetic level, right? Uh, and that's awesome. And thank you for the amazing work you do. Thank you for joining us. This was truly eye-opening. Any last thoughts before we end? Um, no, thank you for all you're doing. You know, if you want any more information about what we do, um, uh, all my books are available on our website. Um, we just encourage people to download them and read up and learn more about uh, how to take care of yourself from as many different people as possible. So, Awesome. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you much.